And so I was just in in battle mode. And you know, I'm a long distance runner. I mean, I, I, I like that stuff. And, and, and you slow down and you just, you settle in for the long race and you understand that, you know, slings and arrows conceptually and more practically, you know, aches and pains will come and go, but you know, you try to just get to the next mile, get to the next step. I just wanted to keep in business. Hey, everybody. Before we get started, I want to tell you about the sponsor for this week's episode. AB Jets is a great story and great company. I'm not exactly flying around on private jets during this stage of my life, but if I were, I'd be calling AB Jets. They're one of the safest private air companies in the world. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. AB Jets is one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States with nonstop access to most destinations around the U.S. Efficient, clean, and easy to work with, AB Jets is an experience that gets you where you need to go on time and with no hassle. Go to abjets.com for more information and book your trip today or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S. This podcast is also brought to you by My Story. If you stop and think about it, are there stories and experiences of someone you love that have been forgotten? If you could, would you go back into time and capture a series of conversations, family memories, and life experiences of someone you love that would be around to keep and share for generations to come? Here, I want you to hear one of our favorite clips from a World War II veteran on D-Day. How come your brother didn't go to Auschwitz? He's lucky he wasn't. He was not caught. They just didn't get him. No. Where no. did like where did he hide? Or what? They didn't. They lived normal life as possible. <laughs> they just didn't come to their house. Yeah. And they right. went to your sister's house. Right. What did right. it feel like that night when you found out? What better way to keep and remember the life of someone you love in their own voice for generations to come? Go to mystorytold.org to learn more. That's mystorytold.org to learn more. Hey, everybody. My guest today is Steve Glenn. Steve is an entrepreneur and CEO of Plant Prefab. After closing its Series B round at $30 million, Plant Prefab is locked in on changing the game the way homes are built. Plant Prefab is backed by some very high-profile investors, including Amazon, Obvious Ventures, and others who recognize the need for a better way to build. We all know the pain points. There's an undersupply of homes, rising material costs, increasing construction timelines, lack of subcontractors, harmful environmental impact. I could go on and on. This is a great episode where you will hear the challenges of building a business that combines profit and purpose, especially when you're trying to scale. The roots of an achievement-based personality, the good and the bad. Steve's own entrepreneurial journey and what you can learn from it. A deep dive into why their solutions solve modern day challenges. Who's James Rouse? His influence, his story, and how his impact even lives on today, plus much more. 
Please enjoy this week's episode with Steve Glenn. Steve, great to see you. I'm looking forward to this. Uh, real honor to be here. So I read a quote and a unique place to start, but that you grew up in Chapel Hill with a single mother who was a waitress, astrologer, and cleaned houses. And then at 18, you won a scholarship to Phillips Academy in Andover. And then I'll stop there. I'm just curious. Is there anything grown up with a single mother who sounded like a hard worker, creative, and intelligent? Did that influence you in any way throughout your own entrepreneurial path up to this point? Um, well, well, sure. Um, you know, my mom was very young when she had me. She was 19. And I mean, I just can't imagine. I have a kid and I, I can't imagine being a 19-year-old with a kid. I mean, it took me decades after that before I even began to reach a level of maturity and consciousness to be, in my opinion, a good parent, um, which requires a level of maturity and patience and consciousness that generally comes with with time and experience. So she was doing the best she could. And I, 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 I developed a great ability to kind of take care of myself and figure out what I wanted and, and make that happen. And, and, you know, frankly, that that's great in, in many contexts and, and, and hasn't always been great in terms of just being vulnerable as a human and, and, and creating the kind of loving connections that I think are sort of ultimately the most important thing that we all do. So that's something both good and, and bad I got growing up. But, you know, more specifically, I mean, my mom was, um, uh, let's see, some might call her a hippie back in the day. <laughs> and I, I definitely, on the one hand, became kind of a super achiever um, a bit in response to that. Um, and I definitely had a chip on my shoulder. I wanted to prove, however, in this, you know, I, I never, in my own opinion, fully embrace some of the things that get associated with super achievement and being a type A, in other words, a, 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 what I would consider to be an inappropriate fixation on achievement and materials and, and power, which I don't think are healthy. And, 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 and I think that was very much my mom's influence directly or indirectly, which is to say a much healthier appreciation, certainly as I've gotten older for what I alluded to earlier, the most important stuff in life, which is connection and, and, and love and, and service and, and, and being a conscious uh, living being. Um, and, and so I, 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 one set of stuff I got in response to maybe my yeah. mom early on, but another set of more fundamentally um, important stuff to me was probably laid it as a foundation and, and, and thankfully has, seems to um, uh, continue to express itself in better ways as I get older. Was there a certain point in time that you can think about where that kind of became crystallized in your own thinking or in your own head? Because you look at the work you're doing now, which we'll get there eventually, but you, you talk about having purpose with the company more than just profit, purpose for society, purpose for innovation, purpose for people, you know, all these things. And what you're describing, at least from from my own interpretation of doing a lot of these by now, growing up with a single mother or single parent or growing up in adverse conditions, it can create this chip on your shoulder or this drive or this kind of hustle-like mentality. And I've heard it time and time again, and ultimately that creates 
fantastic entrepreneurs sometimes because of a work ethic, a tempo, a desire, et cetera. But here you talked about this shift, I guess, and you talked about this experience that started at a young age. And, you know, you have an incredible not-for-profit uh, track record. Well, yeah, you know, college, I think, was pivotal in many respects uh, about this stuff. I, um, it was then that I sort of became more conscious of the implications of my drive. And, you know, at that point, I had certainly um, accomplished a lot, you know, vis-a-vis some. I mean, I, I, I'd gotten, you know, full financial aid to, to a, a great boarding school. And then I, I was on full financial aid um, at an Ivy League college. Um, literally, I was expected to make no contribution other than work. And, and, and there was a small loan. I was a member of a lot of big organizations, some in senior leadership. And so I was an achiever. And I just remember being conscious, kind of projecting that forward and, and, and thinking about it a lot. And I was, I've always been particularly contemplative as a, as a kid. I just, I don't know where that's from, but again, maybe my hippie mom, I don't know. <laughs> um, I've always been into Eastern religion. I mean, always since I was in high school, I was reading about Sid Harther and, and Zen Buddhism. But, but in college, I, I studied a lot more and I learned about the cycle of samsara, which is a, a Buddhist concept. Right. Uh, you know, um, and the con- then the notion is that one of the reasons why we 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 suffer, feel dukkha, this this fundamental pain, is that we are constantly in this cycle seeking things that we hope will give us permanent happiness and contentment, uh, power and materials and better job, and those things never do. You know, maybe there's some initial satisfaction, but then we're on to the next thing, and that and that cycle one really needs to break um, in order to feel a greater sense of, of, of peace. And, and so that, I, I got that, that made absolutely sense to me. You got that at Brown. Yeah. And then you went, you studied, it wasn't community development, but you. Urban, urban planning. Urban planning. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Which that's where he developed such an appreciation and respect for James Rouse, right? Exactly. Yeah. So I was in this, um, Really, it's part of the architecture. It's a graduate school of design um, at Harvard. And I realized that I I just, I don't think I'd make a great architect. I had been into architecture since I was a kid. I mean, you know, as a five-year-old, I, I had books on Frank Lloyd Wright. And um, that was the first thing my mom remembers me wanting to be was an architect. And I just noticed things in the built environment, particularly mid-century modern, by the way, like that was my great love, um, still right. is. And um, when I was studying at this program, coincidentally, I, I had to do a project on Faneuil Hall and Faneuil Hall was, was built by Jim Rouse. He was the developer. And the more I got into studying Rouse, the more I realized like, well, he was incredible. I mean, he really helped me to appreciate two fundamentally important things, both of which are foundational to what what I'm doing today. So the first is, he was the first social entrepreneur to whom I was ever exposed. And I'm, if, if you want to, and there's time, I can tell you about his path and what I got from it. But let I've me got just, all the time you can. <laughs> so we can come back or whenever you feel uh, it's appropriate. 
Yeah. So, so, um, you know, Rouse was, um, he was originally started as, uh, he did, uh, commercial mortgages around Baltimore in the forties and fifties. And he got turned on to this mall that was developed outside of Minneapolis. That was the first mall in the U S and he saw it and he was blown away. And he said, this is, this is going to be, this is going to be big. And he actually became, he built the second mall and he became the largest developer of malls. He started the Rouse company by the seventies. He was public building malls all across the country, actually with Frank Gehry was his longtime architect, designed many malls, including one in Santa Monica, not far from me with, with, with Jim Rouse. Yeah. And he then got into festival marketplaces. First, uh, Faneuil Hall, South Street Seaport in New York, Harbor Place. Uh, he then started what is still today the largest originator of affordable housing tax credits, the Enterprise Foundation. So what's interesting about Rouse is um, he was very much driven by what he felt to be a God-given responsibility to try to add value through the work he did. I uh, was a religious guy, and 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 uh, he never talked about his religion per se to people who worked for him, but he very much talked about how what they were doing was helping to improve communities. Now, take a step back. What does this have to do with malls? Well, when he first started developing malls, uh, late 50s, 60s, 70s, the reason he thought they were important is he saw them in, as an all-weather town square mm. for the emerging suburbs. And, you know, you had uh, people moving to the suburbs, particularly after World War II, because you could get affordable housing there, cheaper housing. But he felt that they lacked a town square, and he felt that that was critical for the health and vibrancy of, of any community. So he became an expert. Uh, well, and 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 the leading developer of, of 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 malls, but now by the 70s, you had significant middle class exodus from city centers, which which concerned him. Um, he felt like he he wanted to try to help um, cities. Many cities at that point were were really uh, kind of decaying because of that, and so he spent some time. How can I? developing a product which he felt uh, could help preserve architecturally important buildings, provide jobs for lower income people, bring people back into the city. And that's what the festival marketplaces did. And this is like the heart of somebody that develops within, with the well-being of that society or of that community in mind, this holistic approach. Exactly. Who's trying to, who's thinking about what I called wedding profit and purpose. And I did my honors thesis at Brown on, on Rouse, um, Wedding Profit and Purpose, which was a, a term I used, not, not Rouse. So Rouse was the first social entrepreneur to whom I was exposed. You know, people like Yvonne Chouinard of Patagonia and Ray Anderson and, and Ben and Jerry's. I mean, those guys were out there doing their stuff. But social entrepreneur, I was in college in the mid to late 80s. That was not a popular term. So Rouse was the first guy that turned me on to this concept. And I, at that point, had recognized that I wanted to try to add value to society through my work. And I realized that teachers and people who work for nonprofits and healthcare were doing it directly every day by virtue of what they did. But I was drawn to commerce. 
And Ralph was the first business guy who showed me how businesses can be a, a agent for societal change. And what I liked about it is, you know, capitalism is a super effective distribution mechanism, right? If you have buyers and sellers, it'll help them set prices and, and but, but it has no ethic, like none. And I love the idea of, of co-opting a capitalistic model to, so creating a successful business is never easy. Let's define success as profitable. Like that's a key that's hard to sustain. You can't sustain yourself or grow yourself without it. And I like this idea of, of having a business where integral in something that makes your products purposeful, biodegradable trash bags, sustainably designed homes, cotton-based apparel uh, that you can recycle or reuse are things that make it both popular, which hopefully helps it sell more and become more. And as you sell more and get more distributed, it's whatever munificence is baked into that gets more widespread. I, right. I love that. Um, so I was like, I want to do that. That was the first thing I got from Alice. The second thing was he helped me to appreciate that if you really care about the quality of the built environment, developers are, some might argue more important than architects, but certainly incredibly important because they hire architects or not and let them do great things or not, often not, right? So, uh, so I, I, I was like, well, hopefully someday I can be in a position to facilitate great design through great architects. And so that's, that, that way I'm back in college. I'm like, that's what I want to do. But I spent a career in tech before I, Right. Can I ask you a couple of questions sure. to draw some connections on? Yeah. So first, y'all just finished a Series B round. And I mean, there's several really very respectable and well-known family offices or different types of companies as investors. But two of those, one is Amazon. And then the second was uh, Anchorage Capital, for example. That's correct, right? I can only talk about Amazon. Okay. But my point, and I could list others, but... You seem very rooted from an experience, from a passion standpoint. You've also been in California for a long time. If I got it right, you've been with the, you've been in Mozambique with the Clinton HIV project. So you have a very dynamic career. And as you said, you've been in tech. As you've gone through these rounds or as you've been telling this story and as you've been working out of this influence of, of uh, you know, James Rouse from back when you were at Brown, how have you tried to maintain that sense of character, those principles, and the belief that you have with profits and purpose to make sure that actually comes into fruition as, you know, any type of, there's tension in everything. And a lot of things can sometimes get compromised by people a lot of the times. How have you been able to kind of dig your foot in, so to speak, to try to make that come to life? Uh, you know, it's it's a it's a it's a, a challenging balance at times. I'll I'll be honest. Um, let, let's create an analogy just with um, building a sustainable home, right? And and we designed and 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 built the first home ever to be certified LEED Platinum in the history of the program. Um, yes, sir. In building certification program Platinum is their highest level of certification, and and. and you get points for things that make your homes more energy efficient or water efficient or, or, or resource material resource efficient or better indoor air quality. And based on those points, you can get certified silver gold powder. So 
you might say, well, particularly on the material resource side and in order to reduce carbon emissions, we want to use as much recycled materials as possible. And in general, well, sure. However, there's an issue of durability. And unfortunately, there are materials that are far more durable than other materials. And unfortunately, some of the most durable materials presently for waterproofing or paint or a number of other applications may not be the most sustainable. So now why is durability a sustainability issue? Well, if I use, for example, a recycled product that I have to replace a lot, then at the end of the day, I will likely, I may quite likely use more more materials um, resulting in more carbon emissions. So I just illustrated that even in the domain of sustainable design, there are trades one has to make. And so too it is with us as a business. And, you know, continuing design analogy, part of our mission is to make great design more affordable. So there's a cost issue. Of course, there's a sustainability issue and there's a design issue. One of the, when, when, when I started Living Homes, which was the predecessor firm, design firm, design and development to plant, uh, you know, we, we um, on purpose wanted to lead with design, not with environmental program, because one of the great lessons learned from the energy crisis in the 70s, I think, when there was in, in response, great green building. That's really what spawned uh, the whole movement, at least in the U.S., but the homes that were being designed, straw bale and underground, were not homes that you could either build in many places or that people wanted. So we started with the premise, first, we've got to solve people's lifestyle living needs, which includes making them beautiful, inspired places. Oh, by the way, we need to build them in, in a responsible way. So when looking at materials, for example, we've been looking at we look at costs, we look at health and sustainability, and we look at design implications, all three. Well, so too with the company, we have to balance things like sustainability, health, cost, uh, safety, uh, scalability, and it's not an um, exact science. It sounds like you have to absorb a lot of pressure all the time. It sounds like you have to you know, take in a lot of things all the time and constantly trying to make the best decision for the company, also for the, for the client, you know, for the environment, for the investors, uh, for internally, for the team. And it seems like there's a lot, there's more convictions that maybe you have than most in a very pressurized environment. Is that a fair statement? Well, yes and no. I would say, I mean, we have a president, um, COO, um, Deep Bhattacharya, and I would say he has to do more of that, quite frankly. Yeah. Um, you know, he's really on the front lines of, of the operations um, and operationalizing our business. He's excellent at that. I'm not excellent at that. That's, that's why we brought him in um, right. three years ago. What I have to do more, and he has to do a lot too, but I probably uh, may spend a little bit more on my time on a relative basis than he does, but probably only because he's busier. Yeah. Um, is make sure that the teams and, and the vast majority of people report up to him. So that, that's why I say this is, you know, more on, on his, his uh, domain. Make sure the teams 
get the code, get the DNA, um, so that neither Deep nor I are just constantly uh, bogged down in, in lots of decision making. That's not scalable. You know, that's 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 small company stuff. So, um, you know, we 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 spend more time on on making sure that that our values and our our strategy is is clear enough and emphasized enough to sort of spread organizationally. How much of what you studied with organizational behavior at Brown, how much of that training that you receive or education is actually useful today? Well, it depends on what level we're talking about. Like the content, I remember very little. Um, <laughs> So I'm 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 big on education. I'm big on college, by the way. And I I, I know there's um, a chunk of folks, particularly in tech these days, who don't think it's is worthwhile. But separate topic about why. But but I but one thing that I think can be excellent about um, a college experience, depending upon what you're going, uh, where you're going. I firmly believe that. In particular, liberal arts education can, if you're pretty open to it and you make some, some, some I, I think, good decisions about teachers, but you can develop skills of mind and that stuff sticks with you for your lifetime. So how to, how to think critically, how to think analytically, how to project manage, how to construct arguments verbally and 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 in written form, uh, how to um, fail quickly and recover somewhat elegantly. I mean, all of these things, as you said, I call them skills of the mind. That stuff will serve you regardless of what you're doing for the rest of your life. And I got that. And I was lucky my freshman year. So Brown has this publication, they still do, called The Critical Review. And it's um, reviews written by students about um, classes and the professors. And I just happened to be reading it freshman year, first semester, and, and read about this class called The Philosophy of Education by uh, Professor uh, Reginald Archambault. And I took it second semester. And it was really, frankly, mostly about like the value of liberal arts education. We read Rousseau and Whitehead and North and, and uh, Dewey. And um, uh, that's where I, I I got turned on to all this, and so, and one of the great things I got was like find great professors. Doesn't matter what they're teaching, just find great professors because they're they're going to turn you on to this. They're going to turn you on to stuff which will give you the opportunity to do the analytical reasoning, written communication, project management that will give you those skills of mind because you're turned on to it. You want to do it. You're motivated. And so that's what happened. And so that stuff serves me every day. But the content itself, man, I can't even tell you the classes I took, much less what I learned in them. Yeah, I was just curious about, you know, things are as competitive now, I guess, as they've ever been within certain aspects. So um, it's fascinating to hear your interest at such a young age. And it's, it's fascinating to hear that you moved into tech, obviously co-founded the company, sold that to Apple. Uh, I could go on and on, Idea Lab, and, um, you know, Walt Disney. Clinton Foundation, did I miss anything? Yeah, a few things here and there. I'm, I'm older. I've done some stuff, right? Yeah, but now coming back full circle, 
Was it hard to suppress this creative desire or this interest in Rouse or this passion for communities and building that entire time? Like, did, did the thought or the desire or the interest go away and come back and then it just timing or was it there the whole time? No, it was there the whole time. I knew I would get into real estate. I knew it was a matter of timing and I was really into tech while I was doing it for sure. So there was no tension, no cognitive dissonance that I was doing this tech thing when really I wanted to do the real estate thing. And in fairness, I had, um, frankly, in the 90s, big crossover. I mean, one of the things you didn't mention for, for five years, I was, for five years, I was working at a startup doing virtual reality software. And one of the things we worked on was what was then called location-based entertainment centers that would allow people to, 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 to have these virtual reality experiences. And then I went to Walt Disney Imagineering as co-head of their VR group. And we were working on virtual reality for both the parks and location-based entertainment centers. Disney had this short-lived concept called Disney Quest that was kind of an LBE in a few locations. And then I, I started a company that was sort of Facebook too early. It was a company called PeopleLink, and we were a leader for time in online community software, which, which enabled people to connect and communicate online by shared backgrounds and affiliations. So online community. So I'm sharing this only to say in half of that time, I was working on kind of crossover technology to real estate. Mm. And then the other half, community, although online, um, probably also worth admitting you know, one um, challenging thing for me on some levels has been, I, I've been, you know, Mr. Too Early Entrepreneur Guy, just uh, getting, I mean, you know, VR for half of the 90s, and then um, what's now called social media for the other half, <laughs> you know, a, a, a couple decades, and VR is still not totally taking off, but, you know, a couple decades before that stuff really uh, took off. Um, but, you know, that's, yeah. that's such is life. No, no, I hear you. What about from the VR standpoint? That's a question I had for, I kind of had it for later on in the conversation, but I, I want to get down to the, make sure there's clear context on plant prefab while we're having our conversation. But from a virtual reality standpoint, to me, there's just this theme. And you said getting to things too early, but it also seems like you have a sense of humor the way you talk about it. And I'm sure that sense of humor sometimes hadn't always been there uh, the whole time. But it seems like a climax right now, I guess, just from outside looking in or reading and then the way you're able to manufacture and the way you're able to offer solutions, the way you're able to, to make significant impact in society, in our country, potentially around the world. But from a VR standpoint, do you see any potential for you to tie that back in to what you're doing today or what you may be doing in the future? Um, well, well, so if you go to plantprefab.com and look under living homes, you'll see we introduced a couple of years ago the first marketplace for architecture. So kind of like target or design within reach, what we've done is we picked different segments of homes that we find interesting, that we think are important, fast growing. So homes of various sizes, uh, accessory dwelling units, uh, uh, passive homes, uh, multifamily housing. And we've identified world-class architects who do great work in those areas. Uh, Brooks Scarpa, Kodo Design, 
like Chern Timberlake, uh, Ray Cappy, and we've created standardized designs with them that we offer in that site. And, and one of the other things we introduced was the first, at least in our class, um, our, our, our domain, real-time 3D software. So I should say web-based web, web system. So you can select one of the homes and go through and configure it with finishes, fixtures, appliances, even smart home systems. Um, like a car, like you can do online with a car, but you can move through it in real time um, and see what it looks like with what you're selecting. So that's an augmented reality experience. And certainly at some point, we'd hope to offer that through your augmented reality um, uh, devices or VR devices. But so we, we're, we're sort of moving in that domain already. Can you maybe describe the specific moment, what year it was and what you were thinking when you were able decided to really go all in or at least build your own home that you have the first one yeah well so understand just and you may but that there are there are kind of two pivotal points here one was when i decided to do living homes right in 20 and that was 2006 when we formally started it yeah in 2016 we formally started plant. So there's kind of origin stories for both. I'm happy to share. Well, and I'm familiar with it because of essentially you were outsourcing the production and the manufacturing. And I know there's other details about it, but I mean, that's like 10 years <laughs> of trial and error, it sounds. And then you go through the 2008 crisis and you're, you started to feel or see the sensitivities that you had from a production standpoint and the reliance on these vendors. And I think you said five out of 10 closed shop. And so it seems like close friends of your, or Ed Williams and James Joaquin and others, and I know you have a real strong community and strong relationships, but then you spin out in 2016, but so you can control the entire process end to end. And then it seems like you've always been able to attract some of the most renowned architects, but then you're able to control the entire construction process. And that's where it seems like the velocity started happening. Is that fair? Parts of it, um, okay. but, but missed a really important part. What's that? So, so what happened was, um, and you know, just that I think it requires a little bit of background. When uh, we started living homes, uh, a really important part of our model was that we didn't weren't going to have factories. And why? I, I came from Apple. You know, Apple doesn't make any iPhones, um, right? It's all outsourced. They make almost not, none of their products, um, like other consumer products companies and electronic uh, product companies. And the reason is, it's just a different business. And there are companies like Flextronics and others who have really built up this incredible manufacturing capability. And so I was like, I don't want to own factories. Okay. Well, we started living homes a year and change before the worst real estate downturn since the Great Depression. Obviously, we didn't know that was going to happen. And so that was a really mostly on all levels, crappy time to be starting a new real estate company. The one and only advantage was that the factories to whom we wanted to outsource or work weren't busy. So they took our projects, um, super awkward working with them, but they needed projects, we needed suppliers. And then to your point, 10 different factories, first 10 years, half of them closed during the downturn. Well, post downturn, we got really busy. 
And we, we were like, we, we need a better way. And, and so the big breakthrough came when we were, well, we, 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 we speculated that if there was a company set up not to do uh, low cost, standard, non-sustainable homes, that's the existing guys, the Capcos and the Champions and the Skylines, but rather high quality, custom, really sustainable homes if that company existed, not only would it solve our needs, but much more important from a business model standpoint, and this is the part you, you didn't quite get, but much more important from a business model standpoint, we could, with the right technology and focus, potentially solve the needs of tens of thousands of individuals and small developers who are doing custom projects, mostly in cities, but also in mountain communities mm. um, um, and second home communities across the country and who only have as a solution local mom and pop general contractors, some of whom are great and some of whom are not so great. And as we got into that, did some research, we realized, wow, this is a huge market, like a multi $10 billion market, and it's 100% fragmented. There literally is no national supplier for this market. You're manufacturing internally for people that are coming to you through plant prefab, and then you're also manufacturing for anyone else around the country and potentially in other parts of the world that need this, that need somebody reliable. Yeah, um, not yet for that other thing. I mean, we're mostly doing projects in California. We've got one in Colorado. Yes, we have national and even international uh, ambitions, but that will take more factories. We've got two. We're, we're, we broke ground last week on our third. So, um, yes, most of what we're doing are for third-party architects. They, we didn't do the design, and that is a key, key part of our business model. That's exciting. When did you have that idea, or how that idea happened? Completely honestly, I, I, I was I was at Burning Man, and I was about <laughs> it. Yeah, and I and 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 what was interesting is I was with um, one of my best friends, who's also just one of the most successful entrepreneurs I know, a guy named Mark Selko, and. And um, we happened to have a long drive back to San Francisco. And I spoke to him a lot about it on the drive home. Thankfully, he was very generous and not just saying, you know, shut up. And the more we talked about it, more kind of realized like, whoa, like, this is a big idea. Like, this is actually way bigger than living homes, which is ultimately, and that was in 2015, you know, communicated to investors of living homes, hey, we're going to spin off this company. I'll be honest, I think it's a much bigger concept. And um, and that's why a year later, Plan actually bought living homes because it just made sense to focus on one company and make that happen. So. Hey, everybody. We're going to take a quick pause here from the show and hear a word from one of our sponsors. After that, we'll get back to the show. Do you want to make efficient use with your time? Now more than ever, traveling hassle-free is harder to find. AB Jets is one of the safest private air companies in the world with impeccable service with nonstop access to most destinations around the USA. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. Bypass the hassle and get an AB Jets jet card that gets you 10 or 25-hour flight options that makes your experience hassle-free. 
AB Jets carries up to eight passengers and is one of the largest Lear 60 operators in the U.S. Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S to travel on your own terms. This podcast is also brought to you by My Story. If you stop and think about it, are there stories and experiences of someone you love that have been forgotten? If you could, would you go back into time and capture a series of conversations, family memories, and life experiences of someone you love that would be around to keep and share for generations to come? Here, I want you to hear one of our favorite clips from a World War II veteran on D-Day. How come your brother didn't go to Auschwitz? He was lucky he, wasn't, he was not caught. They just didn't get him? No. Where, no. Did, like, where did he hide? Or what? They didn't. They lived normal life as possible. <laughs> they just didn't come to their house? Yeah. And they right. went to your sister's house? Right. What did right. it feel like that night when you found out? What better way to keep and remember the life of someone you love in their own voice for generations to come? Go to mystorytold.org to learn more. That's mystorytold.org to learn more. I'm curious, two things it seems like that I've heard about you, the way you've been described. One, you know marketing, and that's your skill set, and you've been able to demonstrate that over and over again. At least that's what I've, I've read. And the second thing, you've been able to see things early. So you've been head down for 10 years, you know, creating and designing, giving people the opportunity for these amazing homes. And then you made a pivot, which it sounds like that's happened before. I'm just curious, what was that like for 10 years to have your head down and to be kind of building this company out of conviction and then have to make a pivot like this when you saw all this opportunity on the marketplace? Well, first of all, to answer the last one, it wasn't pivot, right? Originally, we, we were going to have two separate companies, related, sister companies, okay. um, a design and development firm and a factory. And we frankly, we, we did that because a founding premise was that this would not be our factory. That's why it never was living homes. It was plant prefab because frankly, we wanted to be able to build for our competitors and, and, and a bunch of other people who had never done prefab. That was a founding premise that, that, that third party architects that there, there needs to be a better way to build custom design. So that was, um, Originally, we, we, we thought we'd have two separate companies, but again, about a year later, it was just clear that it was better if they were one. And frankly, our competitors were working with us and they didn't care. They knew that, that we came, that plant came from living homes and they didn't care about it because frankly, I think we were being responsible about not trying to get anybody they sent to us. We just talked to them about um, those architects and not the fact that we also did design. I mean, we were very careful about that. So I think we were pretty responsible and people felt comfortable. All right. So that's on the, it wasn't a pivot. It was like, okay. thank you. Two separate things. And, but then we, we realized they were better together. Okay. Yeah. On the, on the 10 years, I mean, look, you know, started living homes, 2006, a year later, as they said, worst real estate downturn since great depression. That was, so you talk about headwinds. That was category five level 
hurricane headwinds. And it's all we can do, we could have we we could do to just keep the lights on. I mean, we missed many payrolls and you know, for years, I'm not talking about months or weeks, for years, we never had more than a payroll or two in the bank. You know, we were just lucky in that a bunch of projects didn't cancel during the downturn and we actually got some new business. And so we were able to to kind of keep in business. And so I was just in in battle mode. Um, and you know, I'm 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 a I'm a long distance runner. I mean, I, I, I like that stuff. And, and, and you slow down and you just, you settle in for the, for the long race. And you understand that, you know, slings and arrows conceptually and more practically, you know, aches and pains. I'm using the trail <laughs> run. We'll, we'll, we'll come and go, but, you know, you try to um, just get to the next mile, get to the next step. I just wanted to keep in business. So, um, I, I freely admit it. I mean, if someone had said in 2006, well, you know, a little, you know, very soon you're going to have the worst real estate downturn. I would have been like, okay, I'll pass, you know, uh, I, I'll stay intact for a little bit, get back into real estate when this thing um, flows over. But, and because that was my first experience with a real estate downturn. Um, and oh, by the way, it was, as long as and intense as it was. So many people who worked for decades had never experienced anything like that. I, mean, I didn't know how long, nobody knew, except I guess the big short guys, but you know, <laughs> nobody knew how long it was going to last. And so the prime director was just survive, man, just survive. Was there an experience that you can think about specifically that's been extremely formative for you to get, to buckle down, even after you make the decision, you said if you wouldn't have done it again, had you known that that was coming in LA, but to buckle down and to take the arrows the way you said it, because obviously that's what can separate people. It was there anything that specifically that you think back on that's giving you that sense of maturity or endurance that got you through that season? Look, to be an entrepreneur, a successful one, you have to have some combination of vision, drive, grit, naivete, um, stubbornness, uh, right? And I'll focus on the ones that aren't obvious. I mean, naivete, like if you really knew how hard it would be, many people, hell, I might, you know, at times um, just say, you know, forget it up front, right? So that's the naivete. You don't really understand all of the stuff that's going to come up. I mean, luckily, you know, I've been mostly a startup guy, so I know the gig. And unlike some, I've not had home runs, you know, I mean, Idea Lab was a home run, but I was part of the founding team, like that wasn't my idea. But the things where I was more on the front lines of, you know, I've had some base hits, and I've had some failures. And what I've learned along the way, which is the way it is for most of us, not not the superstars, you know, who take off like rockets, but most of us, um, you know, you, you, you get excited about something and you start doing some work and then suddenly you find out some stuff that bums you out and or make your potential competition or funding you thought you were going to get that wasn't into setbacks. And there are just these cycles. And so I've seen enough of it to know that's the gig. So, as I said before, when the inevitable slings and arrows come up, I'm just like, this too shall pass. 
that also means that the good times shall pass. I mean, right? Like that's also perspective. It's not, it is not the case that you sort of like, oh, well, when we do this, like, well, then we're all set. No, you know, you're set to that place. As you, scaling is hard. And as you scale, new problems come up and, and then you'll have to deal with those new problems. Now, in some sense, it can get easier. Like I, I, particular, I, I, I find particular stress from making payroll. I don't think I'm alone in that, but, you know, right. I like to be able to pay people the fair, you know, fair wages they've earned to do good work. And when that's threatened, that one keeps me up at night. So there are levels that you can get to, which is some combination of, you know, a good funding round and ideally profitable operations where you're like, all right, well, I'm feeling good that we can make payroll for a while. That For me, that's a good fundamental, you know, uh, source of relief. Another one is like, oh, this model is working. Like there's a real market here. We've got the product market fit. You can never, in my opinion, be overly cocky about execution. And those are kind of the big three. Like, is there a good market? Do you have the right product market fit? Are you executing? Execution, as I kind of said earlier, that's always going to, as you scale, there will be new execution issues. So you can never get too cocky about that. Not that you can get cocky about market, markets change, or product market fit. But I think once you prove out a market and product market fit, you can in my opinion, focus a little bit more on execution. So it, it, that's another kind of, once you are able to s- at least focus on that one area, as opposed to stressing about all three, which is when you're just starting out, you got to worry about all three. So those are, yeah. those are just some things I've learned along the way that gives me perspective. And, you know, I, I when, when things come up, I'm like, I'm not too rattled, good or bad, you know? You're just, it's a game to some degree. It's more than a game. But you're constantly dealing with things that are unexpected, reacting to macro things. But then you also, you're kind of seeing where you're at and what's coming ahead. It sounds like to some degree you're prepared for it before you get there. Yes. Although I don't know that in my mind, I don't think like, well, this is just a game. I mean, sure, parts of it are game and you're thinking, trying to think a few moves ahead. But I guess what I'm saying is... um, one of the most valuable things I have at this point in my career as an entrepreneur is perspective. So I keep a hundred yard stare and that's what I need to do in my role. Keep a hundred yard stare, make sure we're, we're all clear on the bigger picture, what we're trying to do, what our vision is, what's the vision, what's the mission, what's the big strategy. Cause remember, I'm not on the front lines of operations. Right. So, that, so be a little different if I was, but I, I need to make sure that that particularly those people who are down in the operations, down in their tuck, hey, you know, um, hey guys, here's where we're going, and you know, um, helping people to think about course correcting along the way, um, because I don't have a full map, which is to say everything we need to do along the way, and frankly, like. I wouldn't believe anyone who said, here's the map. I mean, when you're, and we're still new, even six years old, that's still new in an evolving market where more and more people are doing prefab and there's more money available. Things are, you'll have some assumptions and you'll, some of them will be right, hopefully more right than wrong, but um, you know, hopefully you're nimble and, and, and adjusting um, where you need to adjust to get, um, uh, make sure things are in, in good shape. From an execution standpoint, you sound very self-aware and 
you talked about your COO day to day, executive beat. And I'm curious, is there anything that after being maybe close to four decades in, in entrepreneurship and all the things that you've been a part of, the successes, the things that were hard lessons, et cetera, is there anything about trust from an operational standpoint and from an execution standpoint that you feel like is really beneficial to you and your stakeholders and your partners and your day-to-day, your team right now, especially like since I saw that the global prefab market, which double check me on the data, but 153 billion by 2026. And I heard right now, you know, it's just 20 billion. And I'm sure there's a huge runway after that, which I know you talked about other companies you've launched prior and all the McKinsey studies and all those kinds of things. But from a trust, from an execution standpoint, is there anything that you could talk about right now? Well, yeah, I mean, look, uh, so few things. I have um, only worked with a COO once before, a company I started called PeopleLink. And, 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 and Deep is actually our president and CEO. I've never worked with a president. It's a higher level of responsibilities. But, you know, maybe more significantly, I've never, PeopleLink had more people at one point, but we had a third of our revenue, our best year than, than, than plant made last year. And, uh, you know, this new factory that we broke ground on in uh, uh, last week, we'll, we'll have 400 people working there a- a- at capacity. And, and, and it's a pretty sophisticated, you know, robotic-based production facility. I've never run any organization um, or been CEO of any organization with the level of, of hardware and software sophistication and revenue and, and um, you know, scope and scale as big as this. So, I can't say, well, yep, I've done this before. So, you know, I've been working with, um, with Deep for three years now. And, and um, uh, in, I, I definitely have a reputation. Uh, I can be a, a micromanager, but I hope what I've learned is to be better at letting go. I certainly feel like I have. But, oh, by the way, that, that whole micromanagement is about things I know about. And they're you know, there, there's a smaller number of things that I, that I feel like I'm good at. I can say, and I, I hope and believe Deep would, would kind of back me on this, that um, I've not micromanaged the things that I really know much less about. But, you know, the, the trust thing takes time. And, and I've, I've, I hope and, and believe I've been growing into my position and, and, and um, my relationship with the rest of the senior team. And, and you know, we just grew as a senior team, we hired last quarter our first CFO and our first uh, CRO, Chief Revenue Officer. So um, it's not just Deep and I now. You know, we've got four of us who are you know working as a team to make sure things are in good shape. Is it true that thirty nine percent of all global emissions are from construction? There are two different stats, although I think coincidentally they're pretty close. of all raw material that is extracted in this planet are used for construction materials. I've heard that. In the U.S., it's about 40% of carbon emissions. You can directly connect to the power required to or the energy required to heat, cool, and light buildings. That's true. I don't know if that same number holds up globally. 
okay. um, in terms of carbon emissions, but I, I, I can't imagine it's too far off. But you're the first company to commit to be fully carbon neutral. Well, we're definitely not the first company to commit to carbon neutrality. No, 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 in prefab homes. I, I, I think so. I, we haven't heard of any other who made that commitment, um, but yeah. And then I'm not sure how this plays out, but is it true that like shingles, windows, floors, insulation, framing, and then obviously the energy to the home, are those the most important like KPIs, so to speak, of what you're doing differently and how you're going to be able to truly execute in this manner? There's a lot of stuff. I mean, energy as a category is the most important kind of um, area to get right because the energy required to heat, cool, light a building over its lifetime of, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, definitely way is way larger than the energy involved in creating the materials. So, you know, as a category, the most important thing to get right is energy. And, you know, there are two parts to energy. One is reducing demand and then sustainably sourcing it. So on the reducing demand, you mentioned a bunch of things, um, and I, I, I'm not sure if you included insulation, but I did. That, that, can, that can create a tighter building envelope. Hugely important. We spend a lot of time making sure we're, 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 we're doing that. But you have to think also about the, the fixtures and systems that use power, right? So your lighting, your HVAC system, uh, those are hugely important appliances. Those are hugely important too. Um, you know, that's why we use LED lights and Energy Star appliances and um, super energy efficient HVAC systems. And we carefully source materials too, as much as possible, recycled, recyclable. Um, that also impacts your carbon footprint, although, as I started, not nearly as much so as, as um, just making sure it's energy efficient. And then you know, most of the people who built our homes who put on solar, now we can't ship with solar yet. Um, so that's not something we ship, although every home we ship is solar ready. Well, do you think one day prefab homes will surpass traditional stick homes? You know, I, I don't know. Let me answer that in a different way, which I can't answer. Do I believe that technology will ultimately fundamentally transform how homes are done, whether it's on-site or, or off-site. Absolutely. So why did I answer it more carefully? Well, look, right now, certainly there are advantages off-site. That's where you can do some automation. Now, the 3D guys are bringing some, some, some technology to the site. The problem with the 3D folks is that if you're printing your your frame on site, it's almost like doing a SIP. I mean, you can get structure and maybe insulation, but you still have to do your windows and your electrical and plumbing and finish work and appliances and tiles and, and millwork. I don't think you're going to be able to 3D print much of that um, uh, for a while, if ever. Um, so you still have a lot of work to do. Some guys, I think like Mighty Buildings are 3D building modules. So, okay, that's a little bit different. But but in general, right now, you can get advantages doing stuff off-site like, you know, we're doing now and, and we'll get more so when we open up this new facility. But there's no question robots will do stuff on-site at some point. 
Um, I have no idea not seeing, I mean, I, I think we're, well, I mean, is it, is it two decades? For sure. In two decades, for sure, that's going to be happening. But how much sooner? I don't know. But, but, but that, that'll be a difference, right? When that can happen with autonomous trucks, then I'm not sure what the, 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 the mix will be offsite versus onsite. Yeah. This is maybe a weird question, but I saw some videos of some channels, some steel channels that looked like, and it looked like more of a temporary space where a structure was installed. But when these are put down or delivered, do they go on top? Is it steel on the bottom or how does that work? What's the actual foundation that these are set on? So let's say you got a, you got a raw land and it's all set up or it's prepared as much as possible to buy one of your homes. What's the foundation? Oh, um, well, you know, whatever, whatever is required by the particular soil report, the local zoning um, requirement, uh, you know, budget. In general, we like to do a raised foundation. That's the most uh, cost effective. It's the most sustainable. It's, um, it's best for pests and termites. So that can be, it can be concrete. It can be CMU. We've installed directly on, on concrete pads. Um, we've done piers. There, there aren't any, frankly, any special requirements, although it's easiest and most cost effective to do a, ra- a, a raised foundation. And that's generally like a stem wall. And that's generally w- what's, what's done. Yeah. And we've done, we've done um, uh, basements all the time, right? We, it doesn't matter. Is Japan the country that manufactures and ships and acquires prefab homes right now? Do you know that? Good question. I actually don't know whether, well, well probably as a country, yes, yes. That I, I, I mean, I, I, I honestly, I've never looked at, at the, 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 the specific numbers produced. You know, Scandinavian countries, Sweden, Finland, Denmark, it's huge. Collectively, they're probably more than Japan, but I don't know. I, I doubt any of the individual countries are. Yeah, so I, I don't know for a fact, but I would, I, I would bet that's true as a country. What do you think psychologically is going to have to continue to change for the people that could afford a home like the ones we're talking about, where from an adoption standpoint, how have you seen that over the last 10 years? Where do you feel like we are now in that cycle? And how do you see things continuing? Yeah, I mean, homes have just gotten a lot more expensive, you know, full stop uh, to buy, to build, hell, even to rent. I, I think the only thing that's going to have a major impact on that is, well, of course, the economy will contract at some point, and that always helps. But the, the, the longer-term solution, right, that, that comes and goes, and mostly goes, thankfully, mostly the economy, you know, increases. Um, we'll just be, we've got to build more housing, like, just period. There's just too much of an imbalance between demand and supply. And so this is just going back to my comments about capitalism. This is just easy capitalism. We get, we get more supply uh, to solve that demand, prices will go down. Where'd you live before you got your own? You, you built the first one, right? What was the experience? Was there any, I mean, now just being over 10 years in, in years, can you talk about that just from a day to day? Well, it's, it's been like 16, right? Um, okay, sorry, 16. 2006. Well, look, first of all, my home, first one we designed, was designed by Ray Cappy. Um, and Ray is one of my favorite all-time architects. He's a one of the masters of, of, of residential design, in, in, in my opinion. Um, 
he was trained and 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 sort of practiced as a California modernist, a school that you know some might say um, Neutra and Schindler really honed. So you know this indoor outdoor living and open floor plan and floor to ceiling glass and flat roof. I mean, I, form and functionality, no extraneous ornamentation. I think those are kind of characteristics of many variously called California modernists. Or, and, and, and this was sort of a, also a, a, a defining characteristic of a lot of mid-century modern design. But Ray is unique in that he really integrated a craftsman-like attention to detail and warmth. Many modern homes, many people wouldn't necessarily describe as warm spaces. And I like a warm space. I love craftsmen. I love Spanish colonial. I, 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 but many of them don't have a lot of light. And I like having a lot of light. And light tends to be more defining characteristic of, of, a, of a modern, particularly mid-century modern design. So Ray was a master at, at, at combining both. And uh, it's funny, I, I mean, just today, I don't do this every day, but I just, I felt a moment where I was walking through the house and I was, I just felt grateful. I mean, that I'm able to live in a place designed by someone whose designs I so love um, and, and have since I was a kid. What's it like to be a part of something to give people that experience when they wake up in the morning or they're walking around drinking coffee, that custom approach that gives people positive energy, the way that you described it in an age where things continue to be more and more automated and innovation and progress continues to accelerate, but then to be a a conduit of creativity, personal understanding of excellence, to be able to give that to people in their own home. Does Does that ever resonate to you in any way? Yeah, I mean, look, our mission is to um, building a better world through design. You know, we think design matters. And we're not just talking about, we're definitely not talking just about an aesthetic. We're talking about form, functionality, sustainability, uh, quality, dependability, all those things, affordability, all of those things go into great design, um, in, in in my opinion. And and. You know, I feel great that we're able to make that happen. Um, also, we, we have a very safe work environment. We've got a, a pretty healthy work environment. Um, people report being pretty happy here. Our retention is pretty high. So these are all, you know, really positive things, um, both in terms of what we deliver and, and, and how. And we've got lots of stuff we're working on, lots of challenges. I mean, we're, we're, we're not, I can't. And wouldn't claim like we just crack the code and we just rinse and repeat. Like we still have many things we want to do better. And um, this is a big, big milestone for us opening our first automated facility between our two factories in Rialto and Ontario. We can build, depending upon the size of, of the project, I know 25, you know, 40 plus homes a year, we'll be able to, or units, I should say, depending on it's multifamily, we'll be able to do 800 plus at scale in this new facility. So, you know, you asked me if I, I, I do feel good about, you know, stuff we're doing and I'm hundred yard stare focused on the, on the, on the bigger 
challenges ahead and they're non-trivial, um, but we've got a great team. And I just mentioned, you know, we, we, we grew it at the senior level as well as many other positions. I mean, we grew a lot um, over 20 some percent in the last year and, and um, we've got the right people. I, I, I hope and believe to, to execute on, on all this. From your standpoint, being in your position and being in, in this, being so involved for so long in today's society, today's age, is there any benefit that you feel that you have, this company has, by being able to attract really good talent to be a part of something like this? Like, do you think that actually resonates in any way? There has been a lot written about the fact that more and more people are really care about the greater mission behind their work that's just becoming more important. In fact, you know, Jim Collins wrote well-known book, Good to Great, and, you know, trying to understand what makes a business great, which he defined as like industry leading, I think, for 15 years or greater. And, you know, he found it wasn't like the number one correlate wasn't a, you know, super charismatic CEO like Steve Jobs or super fast growing industry like, uh, you know, semiconductors, but rather employees who just felt like there was some greater mission behind their work. And, and so I, I, I do believe that matters. It definitely matters for me. And, and I know it matters for uh, the, the people I'd, I'd like to say, you know, at Plan, I don't work closely with everybody, certainly the people with whom I work closely. Right. Um, that's, you know, particularly in, in, in a market where you have other job opportunities, that, that's, a, that's a great difference. Like, sure, I can go work for, for you know, the man somewhere else, but like, um, and the woman, but, you know, do I really believe like we're, we're, we're doing some good work here? You know, we're, we're good humans. Like we're helping to create a better society. And yeah, I was curious from a philanthropy standpoint, or maybe from a communal standpoint or from helping others that might be down on their luck. Is there anything that you can say? Is there anything that's relevant to our conversation about the housing that y'all are capable of not just building? but also manufacturing as well to help people that need a home around the country. Is there anything to that that excites you? Like I saw, for example, in San Francisco, uh, there was a large you know, donation for a certain amount of homes for people that are homeless and you know, just different challenges around the country or different people that live on the streets or different people you know, through lots of different things. Is there any opportunity that you see that you've already gotten in on or that you see in the future that PLC personally. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I mean, I, I mentioned about our mission. We want to make great design more accessible. Um, we consciously adopted sort of a Tesla-like strategy. We knew we wanted to get to our Model 3. So to be clear, it is not our mission and focus to offer the cheapest housing. Um, right now, the cheapest housing are mobile homes. And I'll be honest, we don't have any better ideas about how to do better mobile homes. Um, the reason why mobile homes are cheap is that the materials inside are lower cost and the production methods are lower cost. And the quality, while some of the companies are, are great at what they do, it's just, it's, 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 it's very different when you're using more expensive, higher quality materials and more expensive, higher quality production processes. It's just very different. And as I just alluded to, it, you know, the math's simple. If it's more expensive materials and production methods, it's just, it's going to be more expensive. So 
Our mission isn't the cheapest homes, but we want to offer great price value because our sustainability and health program are core DNA for us, quality, core DNA, doing this reliably, core DNA. So we want to offer great price value for the kinds of homes we build. And so to go back to the analogy, Model 3 isn't the cheapest car, but it's great price value um, for what it offers as an electric car. Tesla knew they wanted to get there, but you know, creating a lower cost, great price value product, you, you can't, it, it requires scale and it requires a lot of know-how. Well, you can't jump start that. So they're like, all right, we're going to start with some higher end products, learn a lot, build up scale, and then get there. So, so too with us. I mean, we started out doing higher end homes. We've learned a lot. Um, with the hub, we will be capable of building at a much bigger scale. And 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 I hope and believe that will allow us to offer homes at, a, at lower price points. That's super important to us. And uh, oh, by the way, specifically, we are working on affordable housing. We've done a couple projects. We're working on our first multifamily. So it's a multi-unit project in Santa Monica. And we'll be doing more and more of those kinds of projects. So yeah, we're committed to being part of a solution that has to come from many places to make housing more ubiquitous and more accessible. What's most important for you and your team for the next five years that you have to get right? Scaling. Scaling. Yeah. Last question I have. If you and I were to talk 10 years from now, even with all the unknown and even with things that can punch you in the face, punch us all in the face, if you had to take a guess at it, where do you think things will be? Just as a market standpoint, as an overall economy standpoint, as an overall construction and building standpoint, from a design standpoint, sustainability and energy standpoint? Well, I, I, I know that um, there will be a greater percentage of residential construction projects in, these, in the U.S. built with off-site production. I know that. Um, I believe that to be true. I believe more and more uh, building projects, not just residential, will be built in an increasing sustainable way, both because consumers um, and businesses are demanding it more and probably a bit more because building departments are mandating in state code that you build in a more responsible way. Thankfully so. I believe it will be the case that we will be serving a national audience, or at least preparing uh, to make a major inroad into um, being able to serve the nation through a network, through an expanding network of, of factories. And I hope also at that point that we will have completed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of units faster, uh, lower cost, with far greater quality than is often done using a traditional site-based process and that the homes we build will have a much lower ecological footprint and will be much healthier and frankly even maybe a bit more inspired uh, from an architecture standpoint than what you typically find in, in new construction. I hope that's the case. Yeah, that's exciting. Do you mind if I ask you one follow-up to what you just said? Oh, sure. So when you say you know that homes will obviously be built with more environmentally and sustainable practices, and you listed why, and you also said you know homes will be built in, in a more prefabricated way, 
anybody in this country can know that it's harder and harder to get things done. It's costs are going up and there's needs all over the place. I mean, we, we all feel those, that pain. It also seems like there's a lot of people that are building in traditional ways that might experience great gain and benefit and financial opportunity for a period of time. But it seems like, you know, there's going to be a shift and uh, it's going to happen. From your standpoint, with the background you have and experiences that you have, either through studies like with McKinsey or through your own understanding, through your own insights, what do you look for or what have you seen from a first principle standpoint to actually see that shift coming, believe in it, and then try to validate on it to go all in on it? Are, are you saying what data points am I using? Yes. Um, okay. To validate Just, the prefabrication. Let, 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 me, let me clarify. I don't know. Okay. So, right. Because that's crystal ball stuff. So I, I, I shouldn't have said that. But let, let, let me change it to I strongly believe. Okay. So what are my data points? Well, every year we're doing significantly more business and our demand is up significantly. I talk to competitors. Many of them report similar things and they're more and more competitors, more and more companies getting funded to do this stuff. So that seems to indicate that there is more and more interest and, and, and more and more real projects from the people who are doing it. So that's, that's the data point for prefab. And then on the sustainability, um, you know, freely admit, like, I mean, we've been until recently just building in California. I mean, we have this project now in, in, in uh, Colorado, but in California, which admittedly tends to be on the front lines of, of a lot of environmental policies, particularly with respect to construction. There's just more and more green building and energy efficient requirements. However, it is also the case that what starts here often goes, uh, is often adopted in other states. We tend to be a trendsetter in, in, in many places. This is one. So perhaps have less data points there well, lots of data points that California is getting more and more demanding about how you build with respect to energy and environmental standards. That's, that's, that's a fact. So have that data point. I believe it will continue to be the case that what starts here often spreads to other uh, states. And certainly Biden has, uh, there's some in the infrastructure. There was a lot more in Build Back Better. Hopefully some form of that gets passed. Uh, you know, big focus on on sustainability, kind of writ large, but but specifically in the built environment. Yeah, you spent a lot of your life in California, broke ground on your third facility. It sounds like you're, you know, double double down in California, and obviously there's there's been press about companies leaving California. But from your standpoint, what's it like to be doubling down in California, breaking ground in your third facility? and being excited about all this opportunity that you see? Well, first of all, we'll, we'll be able to serve the entire Western part of the country from California. So it's not just to serve California. This is the biggest market, at least individual state for new, new home construction in the country. Even though some people are leaving, there's still a lot of, a lot of home construction happening here. I mean, look, we need to be close to markets we serve, you know, full stop. And we, our, our factory in Rialto in Ontario has been 
Uh, two factories have been great for us. We look forward to Tejon Ranch. Um, we have no issue with being in California. Yeah. Well, I know it's home too. So that one, there wasn't an angle with that question. I found it interesting to talk to you and then to have that, you know, context because you hear certain information repeatedly. So it was just, I was coming out, sounds like it's your home and, you know, breaking ground on your third facility. So that's the only reason I asked that question. Yeah, no worries. Thank you. I appreciate it. Take care. See ya. Hey, everybody. Since you've made it this far in the show, I wanted to share with you something that you may love. A few months ago, I was asked to interview a close friend's grandmother who's in her 90s. She lives outside of the United States, and this is a way to get to the heart of her and capture her life in a way that could stay with the family for generations to come. This interview was an absolute blast, and it brought tremendous joy and value to this family. Since then, I started doing this for others. If you have someone you love or know of someone whose story and life you'd love to capture in an interview, go to mystorytold.org to learn more. My team and I would love to discuss this with you further. Finally, thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Driven By Podcast. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review. Please subscribe to the show and you can follow me on social, on Twitter and Instagram to join me for future episodes of the Driven By Podcast. Hope you have a great week and see you next time.